Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Does hearing about gun violence trigger anxiety in youth? What about preventive measures like lockdown drills? Do they affect the well-being of students? This is Under the Cortex. I am Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with the Association for Psychological Science. To answer these questions, I have with me Dr. Amanda Nickerson from the State University of New York. She recently joined us at APS's new webinar series, Science for Society, and informed us about her research exploring the relationship between gun violence and anxiety. Amanda, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thank you so much for having me. So your research explores the relationship between gun violence and anxiety in youth. How did you first get interested in this topic? Sure. Well, my research more broadly explores school crisis prevention and intervention. And within that, I focus on violence, bullying and abuse, as well as strengthening the social emotional functioning of youth. And really, these interests began in graduate school. I had a professor who was interested in this topic. And as I did my practica out in schools as a school psychology student, I found that many times people in the schools weren't prepared for some of the situations where students either were expressing suicidal ideation or they were making threats of violence. And I decided I really wanted to be fully prepared and also to help others to know how to best deal with preventing, preparing, and responding to violence in ways that would minimize the anxiety and traumatic impact. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, are there predictors of being subject to gun violence? What is the developmental pathway? Yes. So the most consistent and powerful predictor of involvement in gun violence is a history of violent behavior or exposure to violence. Beyond that, when we look at demographics, we know that being male, particularly African-American males in urban areas, are at substantially greater risk for involvement in gun-related homicides. And that's both as perpetrators and as victims. Um, But when we look at, at gun violence, there are many other individual, family, peer, and neighborhood and cultural factors that contribute to this. So in one of our studies, Rena Iden, she's a developmental psychologist who's now at Penn State, and I conducted with a high-risk sample. So these were kids whose mothers had been exposed or had used uh, cocaine or other drugs when they were pregnant, um, many of them living in poverty and in an urban community. Um, we studied them, well, she started studying them from birth, and then uh, our grant took us from early adolescence to late adolescence. And we identified several predictors of attitudes towards gun violence. So fortunately, in our sample of about 216 dyads, very few of them said that they used weapons, that they owned weapons and guns and things like that. So really, we were looking at their attitudes toward gun violence. But one pathway that we found was from early risk. So that prenatal substance exposure, 
being in non-biological care, that that predicted aggressive behavior in kindergarten, which then predicted going all the way to early adolescence, there are more positive views towards gun violence. So we saw that this was something that started on with early, early adversity that carried all the way through. We also looked at uh, victimization uh, by bullying and found that that was also related to this positive ideas about gun violence, particularly aggressive response to shame, which is this idea that if I am shamed or embarrassed or something happens to me, then the best way to deal with that is through aggression and violence and with guns. So this told us that youth that may have more persistent and negative experiences may show this proclivity towards violence and guns in order to cope. And then finally, another pathway that we found was that aggressive behavior in kindergarten predicted in early adolescence perpetrating bullying, which was also related to aggressive response to shame. So again, this adds to other research that has found that even perpetrators of bullying and other forms of violence like gun violence may not use guns for proactive or premeditated towards uh, like beliefs about violence, but rather as retaliation and a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So when we look at this developmental pathway and being at risk in the way that you mentioned, Do we uh, see ethnic group differences? Absolutely, yeah. So we do know that the burden of firearm violence really falls disproportionately on youth of color. So uh, when we look at 15 to 24-year-old Black men, they are at highest risk. Um, So just some statistics that I think are very sobering. Um, Black Americans die from gun violence at nearly 2.4 times the rate of white Americans. And then when we look at children in particular, um, Black children between the ages of 5 and 17 were exposed to violence in their neighborhoods 4.44 times more frequently than white children. And that was prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And these disparities have been become even more pronounced since. Um, Finally, one more statistic that's related to this was an analysis of homicides in Washington, D.C. This was done in 2021 found that 89% of children of color compared to 50% of white children lived within a half mile of a homicide. So this is really something that we have to pay attention to from a structural standpoint and and really try to uh, change these conditions in which uh, some of our youth find themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens to the youth when they find themselves in this situation? So what are the typical outcomes of being exposed to gun violence? Yeah, there are many. Uh, one is uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, also, symptoms of anxiety and depression are much more common in people that have been exposed to gun violence versus those that have not 
and also the more externalizing behavior. So aggressive and delinquent behavior is also associated with that exposure. Um, And so I think we see in this that violence can become cyclical and self-perpetuating. So if our exposure to violence is predicting more aggressive behavior, you're also more likely to witness more violence. And then, you know, combined with that anxiety, that hyperarousal and reactive responses, we see that people have more of a perceived need to carry weapons for protection. So this exposure to violence, you know, in a nutshell, really affects people both in terms of their internalizing and their externalizing and unfortunately makes it so that that pattern may continue. Mm-hmm. And are there any protective factors for uh, exposure to gun violence? Yes, and so important that we focus on those, right? So there's been quite a few uh, meta-analyses and studies, and uh, so a study by Yule and colleagues found that from an individual level, self-regulation, being able to regulate one's emotions was protective, and then support was another really key feature, and that was both support from family, school support, and peer support as separate protective factors. Um, Another study found that people having concern for others, um, as well as future aspirations, so really being able to see toward the future, having goals for work and uh, relationships and creating families, as well as religious beliefs were all found to be protective factors. And then finally, in another scoping review and analysis, it was found that attachment to school and schools having prevention programs, as well as parenting practices, so things like monitoring and a close family relationship, neighborhood uh, collective efficacy, so having the community really feel like They can engage and make a difference, as well as strict state firearm laws were all found to be uh, protective for gun violence. Mm -hmm. So there are many things we can do systematically, in fact. Yeah, so the research is more clear on protective factors, actually, than what are the actual prevention programs that work. Right. So when we study individuals and we look at some of the individual as well as peer and parent and family and community factors, those make it a little bit more clear. The research still very much needs to be developed in terms of what we can do to prevent Um, But the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium, which is funded by NIH, did um, some really good thorough reviews and identified some promising practices. And again, I really have to emphasize that they also made it really clear that there's a, a pretty alarming lack of research in this area. But most of the research has actually been done in healthcare settings, and it's been found that doing screening and education for families in those healthcare settings, whether it's pediatrician offices or emergency department visits, and also distributing free gun locks 
has been found to reduce uh, gun violence. It's also been found that doing single session interventions with adolescents that involve both motivational interviewing and also cognitive skills can also be preventive for gun violence. And then they've looked more at places that have done really multifaceted public health approaches. So an example is the Michigan Youth Violence Prevention Center. So they did a a very involved effort that involved parent training, um, green spaces in the community, mentoring, um, having healthcare settings, sorts of, of interventions, uh, working with the schools. I mean, very, very broad-based public health pr- uh, approach have been found to reduce the incidence of gun violence compared to communities that don't have those Um, And then we look at school, you know, school-based prevention programming, particularly that involves uh, education and then behavioral skills, practice and feedback in different skills, and then also trauma intervention. So if we think about it as the exposure to this violence can have that cyclical pattern that actually intervening with some of those trauma responses Um, can also be protective. And then finally, at the policy level, again, those more restrictive state-level firearm laws are also associated with reduced gun violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned school briefly, interventions at school. Uh, Other things happen at the school, right? As part of regular school routine, many children go through lockdown uh, drills. Do these drills create anxiety in children? What does your research say? Yeah. So this is something that many educators, parents, and the general public are concerned about. And I, too, was very concerned when this first came out, this idea that we were going to have our children, you know, locking down and are they going to be afraid that this is going to happen in their schools? So I've conducted a couple studies in this area, and one was conducted with my doctoral student, Elizabeth Z. And this is going back. This was published in 2007, but we conducted a lockdown training and drill. Uh, We randomly assigned elementary school students to either that drill condition and training or a control group that learned origami, the, you know, folding of, of paper and things like that. And then we looked at, you know, did they, did their knowledge change? Did their ability to know what to do in these situations change? But then we also looked at anxiety and perceptions of school safety. And we found that those in the lockdown training and drill condition uh, were more able to know what to do and actually perform the skills of of knowing what to do in these situations um, compared to those in the control condition. But when we looked at anxiety and perceptions of school safety, there were no differences in the in the two groups. So that said to us that that engaging in this in a best practice manner did not increase their anxiety. Um, then more recently in a study with uh, Dr. Jacqueline Schilkraut and myself with several hundred students in a high school, 
we did the um, the Spielberger State Trait Anxiety Inventory, and we did it one week prior to participating in a drill and then immediately following the lockdown drill. And what was really interesting in that is that we actually found that anxiety was lower immediately after the drill and the uh, well-being, which was sort of the absence of anxiety, so reporting feelings of being content and secure, that actually increased after the drill. So that was really surprising uh, to us because, again, uh, there's a lot of concern about these drills and the anxiety they might cause. But I do want to note that this was done with lockdown drills conducted by you know, a best practice procedure. So these were not armed assailant uh, options-based approaches. There weren't props. There weren't fake blood. The drills were announced so people knew that they were a drill. So um, not all all practices are created equal for sure. Mm -hmm. I find it surprising as well. I wonder if the students in this case find themselves in a more uh, control environment, they feel like they are in control, they know what to do. So why do you think you have these results? I do think that's part of it, that this is something that is on people's minds. And if we don't have the skills or the practice and what to do, then that could actually cause us to be more anxious. Um, But once we have uh, a little bit more control over the situation and a plan that that can help to not only increase our muscle memory about what to do, but just make us feel like uh, we do have a little bit more power and control in the situation. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is about acknowledging and accepting that we live in a society with this. And children do better when we do, as you said, well-controlled cases of interventions like this or drills like this. Yeah, very interesting. So when I look at your research, I see that you mostly work with collaborative teams. Who do you typically work with other than educational psychologists? Yeah, Yeah, collaborating on research with colleagues and students always makes it better. And I love to learn from others and also include practicing school psychologists in some of our work as well. But in terms of the different disciplines with the researchers I collaborate with, I work with people from the fields of criminal justice, nursing, educational leadership and policy, developmental psychology, geography, public health, social psychology, and communication. Mm -hmm. So it's a group effort to understand what is going on uh, in youth when it comes to gun violence. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? I think the questions I, I was able to to get at a lot. Um, I will uh, note that myself and uh, 18 other prevention scholars came up with a position statement called a call to action to prevent gun violence in the United States of America um, and really outlined uh eight different action points at the universal level and reducing risk and promoting protective factors as well as interventions and really wanting to remind people that it takes a comprehensive approach, that it involves, you know, creating physically and emotionally safe conditions and positive school environments. Um, long before gun violence occurs, 
Um, we have to look at our discipline practices. Um, but then, of course, we also need coordinated mental health services. But we also have to look at, you know, what are the laws and protections about uh, guns themselves um, and really training our schools and community in threat assessment. So knowing that if there is a threat, how do we really systematically look at uh, the, the extent to which someone poses a risk. So um, it's a complex problem with pretty comprehensive solutions, but we do have more and more evidence that points to some of the things that will really make a difference in this problem. Well, Amanda, thank you very much for this very informative conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with APS, and I have been speaking to Dr. Amanda Nickerson from University of Buffalo, the State University of New York. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org. Discover the power of digital content with Macmillan Learning Psychology. At Macmillan Learning, we understand that content is crucial, especially in the digital age. That's why we've created Achieve, a cutting-edge platform that takes interactive teaching and learning to the next level. Achieve offers a wide range of online course content, from interactive ebooks to innovative assessments, engaging videos and activities, as well as helpful instructor resources. Our platform makes it easy for you to access what you need and use what you want, all in one place. Ready to see it for yourself? Take an introductory tour of Achieve today at macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.